This is an ABC podcast. Hello there, it's the Religion and Ethics Report. Andrew West here on RN and at the ABC Listen app. Today's episode, it's like a Cold War thriller and just like an espionage story, this one has been a tightly held secret for months. But now the Vatican has unveiled this ambitious plan to broker peace in the Russia-Ukraine war. Pope Francis has repeatedly condemned the invasion without blaming Russia explicitly because back-channel negotiations have been going on. Francis is now sending a top diplomat, he's got a record of negotiating peace, to meet Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky and Russia's President Vladimir Putin. Christopher White is Vatican correspondent for the independent newspaper, The National Catholic Reporter. Ever since the Pope first said to reporters on his way back from Hungary at the end of April that he was involved in a secret peace mission to bring about peace in Ukraine, the details have always been a bit opaque. What we now know for the first time is some concrete uh, elements of the plan, namely that it includes that the Pope is going to send Italian Cardinal Matteo Zuppi as his liaison. Uh, and what we understand at this point is that Cardinal Zuppi, uh, who is the Cardinal up in Bologna, is likely going to make overtures and try to meet with both President Zelensky in Kiev, also President Putin in Moscow. Now, we do not know if those invitations will be accepted, but that is certainly the thinking at this point, that he will go there and effectively beg for peace or some sort of ceasefire on the Pope's behalf. I'm assuming that neither Zelensky nor Putin want to be seen to be turning away an envoy of the Pope. Well, certainly not President Zelensky. What we've seen since the start of this war is an open line of communication between Kiev and Rome. Certainly, Kiev has expressed some disagreements with things Pope Francis has said. They would like the Pope to call out Russia in stronger terms. But they certainly have made efforts to show that they want the Vatican support. We just saw just about 10 days ago, President Zelensky coming to Italy and meeting with Pope Francis. We've seen the prime minister of Ukraine coming here and asking for the Pope's help in the return of Ukrainian children that have been taken to Russia. So they certainly see the Vatican as playing a serious role here. But I think in terms of Ukraine's eye, they see it as more of a humanitarian role than a political role. Since the start of the war, however, the Vatican has not had much direct contact with Russia. There's been no conversations that's taken place between Putin and Pope Francis. The highest level of contact has been with Lavrov, the foreign minister of Russia, and Cardinal Pietro Perlin, the Vatican Secretary of State. And that meeting took place at the United Nations at the General Assembly there back in the fall. What do we know about the background of Cardinal Matteo Zuppi, who will be the papal envoy for peace here? He's the leader of something called the Community of St. Egidio. What's that community? So the Community of San Egidio is an Italian nonprofit organization that is involved in a lot of humanitarian work around the globe, but particularly in conflict resolution. It's often referred to as the, the UN of Trastevere, and Trastevere is the Italian neighborhood in which San Egidio is headquartered. And they really, you know, 
possess tremendous soft power in bringing heads of state uh, and rebel forces together for peace negotiation. This famously happened in Mozambique, where Matteo Zuppi uh, helped bring about a peace agreement there. But San Egidio was intricately involved in a number of conflicts around the globe. Uh, you can think of, of South Sudan, where most recently in, in February, the Pope traveled to help bring about a peace. Now, of course, the Pope went there for this visit alongside the Archbishop of Canterbury to beg for peace. But it's really been San Egidio that's been there on the ground for well over a decade trying to bring about peace. And Zupi has effectively been sort of the, a longtime chaplain of the group. Uh, so this is very much in his DNA. He seemed to have some success, as you say, in Mozambique. I mean, there's been not a perfect, but a pretty uneasy, but durable peace there. I think he was even made an honorary citizen, wasn't he? That's right. Mozambique is the real success story of San Egidio. This, of course, is the, the early 90s, sometime back, but he helped effectively negotiate an end to a civil war that had lasted for about 20 years. And Cardinal Zuppi is really pointed to, even to this day, as the person who made that possible. Christopher, the Vatican has been reluctant to take a side, or at least overtly, in the Ukraine-Russia war. My understanding is, though, that the Pope has made it pretty clear to Russia that he abhors its behaviour. He hasn't held back on his criticism there, am I right? No, that's true. I mean, he's referred to this as a war started by people acting with childlike behaviour. Of course, he didn't say Putin's name in that, but, you know, he he pointed the finger pretty directly at Russia in, in that instance. Since the start of the war, by my count, he's spoken out uh, and begged for peace on over 150 occasions. So if you do the math, that works out to be about once every two to three days, the Pope is saying something about the war. We've seen him cry publicly talking about just the cruelty of the war. So I think it's weighed on him quite heavily. He's appealed, in his own words, first and foremost to Russia to stop the war. Now, what Ukraine has been upset about is sometimes he'll talk about Russia and Ukraine in the same sentence, which Ukrainian officials say there is no blame to go around on both sides. One party started this war, so don't sort of ask both of us to do something. Russia controls the end to this war if they want. What do you think would be the benefit for Russia in having a peace deal brokered by the Vatican, not by the European Union, not by the United States, but by the Vatican? I'm wondering if there could be something beneficial that the Kremlin sees in that. I have to say from the start of the war, the Pope and the Holy See has tried to carve out a role of itself as a, as a peacemaker. Now, a lot of experts in the region will say there isn't a real role for the Vatican to play. These are two predominantly Orthodox countries. So why would a Roman Catholic church, particularly in the figure of the Pope, be able to bring about peace among these two predominantly Orthodox countries? But, you know, historically, this is the position the Vatican has always staked out in world conflicts. In essence, they want to sort of be a table that everyone can come around when the time comes. 
And some people that believe the Vatican has a real role to play in bringing about peace would say, by the Holy See getting involved in this and bringing about some sort of peace deal, it might be a way for Russia to save face, you know, that he's not bowing to Brussels and he's not bowing to the United States, but he's listening to the moral and spiritual voice of the Pope. That remains to be seen. There are lots of questions surrounding that, but that would be the argument and sort of what role the Vatican could play in bringing about some sort of ceasefire or peace deal. I'm not suggesting that there is remotely this as a motivation for Cardinal Zuppi in going as the Pope's uh, emissary for peace, but what could be the outcome if he manages to uh, pull this off? I've read some very interesting commentary about his future. Cardinal Zuppi's stock is certainly on the rise, if you will. He was made a cardinal just a few years ago, and then in, in 2022, he's elected the president of the Italian Bishops' Conference. He's considered very much in the mold of Pope Francis. And so, you know, if you talk to any Vatican journalist or a Vatican observer, they're going to tell you he'll almost certainly be on the short list when it comes to the election of, a, of the next pope, someone to become Francis's successor. By brokering some sort of peace deal, if that were to happen, it certainly is going to elevate him to prominence in the Catholic Church in an even greater spotlight. What that will mean when it comes to elect a new pope, it's hard to say. Most people will say it's, it's hard to imagine just from a sheer numbers game that an Italian will be elected, but who knows? Christopher White of the National Catholic Reporter. Ukraine's Orthodox Christian community is deeply divided between rival churches, one of them linked historically to Moscow. The Ukrainian Orthodox Church says it's broken all ties with the mother church in Russia, but its members are leaving in vast numbers, and now the Zelensky government claims the church is involved in espionage and treason. Max Hunda is a Ukraine correspondent for Reuters. He wrote about the controversial church and joined us from Kiev. It says that from 1990 to May 2022, it officially and canonically recognised the authority of the Russian Orthodox Church over it. It considered itself to be a sort of daughter organization of the Russian Orthodox Church. But in May 2022, they officially broke all ties with the Russian Orthodox Church after the invasion and after the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, Kirill, endorsed the invasion in no uncertain terms. It was just not a tenable position for them anymore. So they had to make that break, and they did. But the Ukraine government says they still have de facto links with Russia that they're just not being honest about. Max, what about, though, the Orthodox Church of Ukraine, this newer church? Uh, where did it come from? The OCU was founded sort of on the, the turn of the year from 2018 to 2019. It was all going on around that turn of the year. Basically, Ukraine's government, after Russia's annexation of Crimea and its support for militias in eastern Ukraine, since 2014, relations completely soured between Ukraine and Russia. And so there was a much greater impetus within Ukraine's government to make sure that the country's main Orthodox Church was not in any way linked to Russia. So they helped to lobby for a canonically recognized Orthodox Church that was completely independent of Russia. And then in 2018, Constantinople and Patriarch Bartholomew agreed to do it. Now, your very interesting piece for Reuters raises some um, almost sort of Cold War-style questions here. 
the Moscow-linked church has come to the attention of Ukrainian security and secret services. Why? The short answer is because they suspect that it's a tool which Russia uses to pump certain informational narratives into Ukraine and to convince Ukrainian citizens of certain narratives which Ukraine believes would be helpful to Russia. Ukraine's very, very sensitive to Russian disinformation because it has lots of experience dealing with it. And Russian narratives have been pumped into Ukraine's informational space from various directions and in various ways. Basically, the start of this campaign, the current government, let's say, interest into the UOC started in autumn 2022. There were lots of raids launched by security services on UOC churches. Authorities say they found lots of evidence of things like pro-Kremlin literature, literature that sort of justified the occupation of various Ukrainian territories like Crimea or Kherson. They launched lots and lots of criminal cases. In fact, over 60 clergymen are currently under criminal investigation. I think seven have been convicted. Two that we know of have been swapped in prisoner swaps for Ukrainian POWs. I think that that's a rather interesting moment because one of those guys was swapped for 28 Ukrainian POWs, which rather shows his value to the Russians. Well, yes, Max, this does have all the echoes of the sort of Cold War trading of prisoners and spies, as it were. There's been a lot of attention paid to the main monastery of this Moscow-linked church, and this monastery is right in the centre of Kiev. What's the reason for this attention? So the reason for the attention towards the monastery is it's very historically and emotionally significant to both Ukraine and Russia. It, it's a monastery complex with almost thousand-year history. It sits on this vast hill at the top of Kiev. It's one of the first things you see driving across the river into the heart of Kiev. It's very, very prominent uh, and very historically significant. There are several figures, very historically significant figures, including figures who are very significant in Russian history, who are buried there. So to both countries, it's a place of great significance for wartime Ukraine to have a church which, not just the government, but if you look at the polling data, the majority of citizens associate this church with Russia. As one pollster told me, since 2014, this church has been seen by large parts of Ukrainian society as a fifth column of Russia within Ukraine. And to have what people see as that fifth column sat on this super prominent, extremely famous UNESCO protected tourist site that sits very visibly and prominently on the hill on top of central Kiev, really upset lots of people and it made them very, very angry. Mm. I think now the government see this as a chance to squeeze them out. I've read this description of that monastery as a nest of spies. I mean, does that seem real? It's hard for me to say. I personally don't have any evidence for espionage going on within its walls. The government says they've found various pieces of evidence which implicate clergymen in that monastery, including the cleric in charge of that monastery, Metropolitan Pavlo. He's actually now going through a court case for supposedly stoking up religious hatred. There is a certain sort of historical trope that Orthodox priests who were educated in the Soviet Union, especially at Russian seminaries, there is a certain kind of historical and cultural association of those clergymen with Russian or Soviet secret services. That's long been a kind of societal view 
Ukrainian officials say they have evidence that lots of these UOC priests are working with the FSB, but the church denies all this. The church is in quite an awkward position. I mean, what does this Moscow-linked church, again, it's a description that describes its history, perhaps not its current status, but what does this Moscow-linked church say in its defence? So the church, which is described by governments and media in Ukraine as Moscow-linked, actually denies it has Moscow links. It says it cut all its Moscow links in May 2022. They exist in an informational sphere of a country that's at war with Russia. So there is a certain line that whatever their true intentions, they just have to take. And so various figures from the church have come out in support of the Ukrainian war effort. You sometimes see UOC parishes, parishes of this allegedly Moscow-linked church, raising money for Ukrainian armed forces. But at the same time, you have lots of its senior figures who are clearly very uneasy with this new informational reality. You could see that they're having to sort of toe a difficult line. A lot of the senior leadership, they don't quite come out the whole way and sort of endorse the current prevailing Ukrainian informational politics of being completely anti-Russia, anti-invader. They're sort of caught in this very awkward no-man's land where they can't not condemn the invasion, they can't not support Ukraine. But some of their senior figures seem to be quite awkward about doing that. And there were some scandals where, you know, that there were sort of videos, unconfirmed, and the church denied that they were real, but videos that did the rounds appearing to show a clergyman in that historic monastery that's currently under dispute leading worshippers in in sort of songs of praise for Russia. Those kinds of stories and videos tend to do the rounds on a semi-regular basis. Just finally, Max, how great is the exodus from this historically Moscow-linked church? Polling data shows it's pretty vast. If you look at the polling data from the most recent one I've seen is, is unfortunately from July last year, but even that shows that the church lost about three quarters of its worshippers since the invasion. Max, thanks for being on the program. No worries. Thank you so much, Andrew. Max Hunder of Reuters in Kiev. And you're with me, Andrew West, on the Religion and Ethics Report here on RN and at the ABC Listen app. India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi received a well-reported, almost rock star welcome from Australian Indians this week when he fronted a huge rally in Sydney. But how authentic is the local affection for Modi? At home, he's popular but divisive, especially on religion, because his party pushes a strong Hindu nationalist line. Associate Professor Sukmani Karana is from the Indian diaspora. She's based at the University of New South Wales. I think there is a perception that Modi is quite popular in the Australian diaspora. Um, And if you look at the spectacle at Olympic Park yesterday, a capacity of almost 21,000, nearly full and chartered flights from Melbourne and as well as from parts of Queensland, you would suddenly get the impression that that's the only view there is of Modi in the Indian diaspora. Uh, but if you start digging into, you know, what what else exists out there, there's also now a significant section of the Indian diaspora in Australia that is uh, critical of Modi, not not merely because of what is taking place in India with, with regards to religious minorities and certain bills, but also with regards to the division that now exists 
um, in the Indian diaspora communities as a result of uh, what's happening in India. I saw some references, though, that Indian Australians were calling their attendance at this huge rally uh, Yatra, uh, which seems to be like a pilgrimage. That's a very religious image. Um, are some people literally making a pilgrimage to see Modi? Um, so another term that you may be familiar with or may have heard of in relation to the people who are ardent Modi followers is Bhaks. And Bhaks is in um, a Hindi word, which if you translate it literally in English means um, religious followers. So it does seem that the kind of, uh, you know, following that Modi is commanding in sections of the diaspora and in sections of India is almost that of someone who's like a Bollywood superstar or a religious leader. And it's certainly not, uh, you know, the vast majority of people. So such people also perhaps being less inclined to hold him to account um, as the democratically elected leader of a country. So there seemed to be from a lot of the commentary, people who were interviewed, regular Indian Australians, just a sense that Modi is the man who has delivered an international preeminence to India. Um, And this is why they're drawn to him. I think that's actually um, an important point and something that uh, does need to be considered by people on both sides of politics, um, uh, including the people who are critical of Modi and critical of his government's human rights record. A section of Modi's followers, both in India and the diaspora, uh, may not be uh, hardcore Hindutva followers or may not have close associations with the RSS and the VHP, which are organizations that are proponents of Hindutva. But there is the sense that he he has been assertive on an international change. He's changed the image of India, especially amongst Western countries, that India has taken more seriously in the last decade as a result of all the international diplomacy that Modi has conducted, as well as uh, coupled with that, India's growing economy. Mm. And therefore, Indians abroad been being taken more seriously. But whether that's actually the case or not, you know, there is, I don't think, any objective assessment of that. But emotionally, that's how uh, a lot of people, a lot of Indians abroad feel about Modi. Sukmani, what would account for this small but uh, seemingly appreciative group of Indian Australian Muslims who were at the Modi rally? In fact, um, before the rally started, uh, they took some time out to pray quite prominently. Well, I think you'd have to speak to them to kind of understand uh, what it is that, you know, what it is that they had in mind. And perhaps it is the case that they want to make their presence known. And it's largely about India-Australia relations and they see themselves as part of India, not merely as, you know, their their Muslim identity as being the only kind of distinguishing factor about them. So I think you'd have to speak to them to try and understand. But there have also been Indian Muslim associations uh, that have been critical of the policies as well as other minorities. I think there's a range of views even amongst those minority groups uh, in his speech, I noticed that uh, Prime Minister Modi mentioned yoga. He said that yoga was now something that uh, Australians have in common with Indians. And of course, thousands of Australians, hundreds of thousands of Australians, Indian and, and non-Indian, do practice yoga. But does this overt mention of yoga have another meaning? I think there's a, uh, there's a few kind of common symbols 
which are translatable across cultural contexts that um that were mentioned by Modi and that are regularly regularly used by political leaders at that level to draw upon the connections between the countries. Cricket is one of them, um, which is common between India and Australia. Increasingly, food is something that a lot of Australians recognize, um, you know, uh, although it's often reduced to curry, which has its own problems. Uh, but recently, yoga has also emerged as something that, you know, a lot of Australians identify with, and I'm talking about Australians more broadly, not just Indian Australians. Having said that, I think yoga has had an interesting kind of contemporary history in India where it, it may not have been popular about 30 or 40 years ago, has had a bit of a resurgence since the West started recognizing it as a form of meditation, as a form of exercise, sometimes making the connection to India, sometimes culturally appropriating. But I think more recently, a lot of the yoga that has been practiced by Modi and some religious leaders um, has had connotations of exclusively being associated with a certain practice of Hinduism, whereas yoga might also be practiced in other religious uh, cultures like in Buddhism. So I would say that, you know, the kind of yoga that Modi was referring to may or may not be the kind of yoga that is understood more broadly by um, Australian society. Just finally, as we wind up Sukmani, does Indian nationalism take a different form in the diaspora than it does back in India? That's a great question, Andrew. So if we start looking at the sorts of organizations that I mentioned earlier, like VHP, which is the Vishwa Hindu Parishad, which in the Indian context is quite explicitly associated with Hindu nationalism. But what you see in the diaspora is what you might call soft Hindutva. Um, so the VHP doesn't identify itself as such, but it might fund, you know, a body like the Hindu Council, which in turn um, organizes many cultural and religious festivals in the Indian diaspora. So many thousands of people who go to the festivals organized by the Hindu Council may not even recognize its association with the VHP. Uh, a lot of people in the diaspora merely see attendance of these festivals as maintaining their links to the homeland and may not be appreciative of where the funding or the links are really coming from. And, and, and in turn, you know, the way multiculturalism is organized in Australian society, many political parties and other kinds of groups fund the kind of multiculturalism that appreciates this cultural maintenance, that is approving of this cultural maintenance uh, without realizing, you know, what is going on underneath. To give you another example, the group that organized the rally yesterday, it, I think it's called an um, Indian Diaspora Foundation or something along those lines, which uh, seemingly sounds like an apolitical group. But the two people heading it are actually whole leadership positions in the Australian branch of the BJP, which is the party that Modi belongs to. Associate Professor Sukmani Karana, she's with the University of New South Wales and she is a scholar of Indian diasporas around the world. Sukmani, thanks for being on the Religion and Ethics Report. Thank you for having me, Andrew. Before we go, we hear a lot about the plight of refugees forced from their homelands. But next week, a look at the vast number of people who are internally displaced, still inside their countries, but driven from their homes. And in 2022, at the end of the year, we were counting over 70 million, precisely 71.1 million IDPs or internally displaced people. Now, this is roughly twice the number that we were reporting a decade ago. But more significantly, it's 20% higher than just last year alone. 
And this increase has been driven mostly by the sharp rise in internal displacement, of course, uh, in Ukraine as a result of the war there. So millions of people there were displaced both within and outside of the country. So at the end of 2022, we were reporting a conservative figure of 5.9 million Ukrainians uh, internally displaced. We also reported huge numbers of people displaced as a result of the Pakistan floods, but also as a result of many other new and ongoing conflicts. That's next week. But that's it from me. Find us using the search function at the ABC Listen app. We're in the society and culture section or look for us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to Amanda Roberts and Sean Doyle. I'm Andrew West. Join us again for the Religion and Ethics Report. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.